Well, bonjour to le monde. It's the hack here is le hack, as you can probably tell, with le professeur. Peter, how are you? Comment ça va? Good, Hugh. I, look, don't speak French to me. I'm not going to follow a word, you know. Parlez-vous français un appétit? But having said all of that, I wanted to start by praising you because I'm now, and I've only just started, I'm towards the beginning of it, but the book that you recommended to me, I think during one of these podcasts, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. Remember, I went out and grabbed myself a copy. Yeah. And then you know, various things distracting, of course. And, and unsurprisingly, given that it's about climate change, guess what? In the context of Glasgow, I got right back into it. And it is an absolutely cracking read, obviously concerning, but I, I would encourage anyone and everyone to buy it and read it. It's so accessible, but also so informative. It, it, it neither falls into the trap that you sometimes see where academics become turgid in their writing, nor where more populist writers don't have enough depth and insight. It, it, it sits neatly between the two, in my view. It's, 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 I can't wait to get off this podcast and keep reading. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Because as he says, he's not an environmentalist. Mm. He's never counted himself as an environmentalist. He's just someone who essentially follows the evidence and he has the virtue of being a good writer. So he, he tends to get you in and then hits you with the evidence. And uh, all praise to my 93-year-old father who recommended it to me <laughs> because he read it. And um, as he says, he contemplates a world that he will not be part of, but is concerned plenty of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren all the rest of it. So yes, the uninhabitable Earth. And on the subject of books, by the way, I'm really enjoying another book that's just come out. Uh, I don't know if it's actually been formally released yet. And that is The Game by Sean Kelly. Mm. And as you would know, Sean Kelly, I first met him as a, as a very young member of Kevin Rudd's press team, media team, under the almost as young Lachlan Harris. Uh, he was one of the few to remain and shift over to Julia Gillard. Yeah, I was about to say that, actually. The testament to him was that unlike so many in that party who took sides between Rudd and Gillard, he was one of the ones, exactly as you mentioned, <laughs> who was good enough and personable enough to be able to be there on both watches. Yeah, but one of the things which is really striking about this book, it's called The Game. It's a portrait of Scott Morrison. It is probably perfect in its timing at the moment, but Sean Kelly is not only a very subtle writer, he's a very elegant writer, but he also totally understands, given his background, political communication. And it's not a partisan book. He's not there to just slam dunk Scott Morrison. He's there to examine Scott Morrison, the phenomenon of Scott Morrison, and particularly some of the mysterious qualities of Scott Morrison that make him such an unusual politician. And a couple of those elements have been on absolute show in recent days as he's gone through Rome and through Glasgow. I wrote about it for The Guardian, an article which started with uh, slipperiness as his defining characteristic. And I, I wrote that before I'd read the book, but the book tends to confirm it in so many ways and gives details of it. And this is something we've seen in recent days and absolutely on, on show is the degree to which Scott Morrison can avoid being nailed down. He's the slipperiest customer of any major politician I've, I've seen in that he doesn't get held to things he said previously because these things shapeshift constantly mm. and he avoids questions. You've seen all this yourself. You, you know. What did you make, for example, of the Macron statement about, I don't think I know he lied, and the response that involved, among other things, the leaking of the, of the text from Macron. Yeah, look, it was classic Scott Morrison, which I haven't had the chance yet 
to read uh, Sean's book. I've got a copy like you, which I think is an inspection copy, but one of our colleagues uh, is currently enjoying it, having had it delivered to the office before I was in there. So I'll have to have a look at it after that. But it sounds like it's some of the same themes that Wayne Errington and I touched on in our book about Scott Morrison. You know, the, the trust is at the core of you know, understanding him in many ways, the lack of uh, honesty and trust in the way that he has a lot of his political dealings. And, and it underpins that exchange with Macron. I, and I think this is an important caveat, a lot of Morrison or right-wing defenders of Morrison, they say, oh, Macron is playing to his base back home. He has an election to contest, yada, yada, yada. Now, I, I don't disagree with all of that. You know, Macron is not, if you like, a wholly non-political innocent party in this. But that doesn't change the analysis of Scott Morrison, which is really my primary interest, obviously, as, a, as domestic politics has been to the fore on this. And it looks like this. Macron clearly felt deceived in some form or another. Whether he was right or wrong to raise it, whether he was belling a cat and playing politics for his own audience by calling it out the way he did in that exchange with the Australian journalists over there in, in Europe is not the point of itself. The point is that he had at least some sense of feeling that way. And Scott Morrison then tried to abrogate his responsibility to answer whether that was a legitimate or an illegitimate feeling. And then clearly he or his office, and if it's his office, it's via him because it was a text exchange one-on-one between Macron as the French president and our Australian prime minister. I found it utterly extraordinary that that found its way into the Daily Telegraph newspaper, simply because even if you think and I'm giving him too much benefit of the doubt here, but even if you think that it was wrong for Macron to do what he did rhetorically and it was intentional and damaging and all the rest of it to do that with his claim of Scott Morrison being a liar, to then leak a private text exchange as a response, I mean, that is just extraordinary at that international leader-to-leader level. You might feel like you want to do that. You might want to talk about it. You might be frustrated, but you are compounding it even if you are in some way getting the best benefit of the doubt here by then doing that. It's an application of domestic internal party politicking to an international diplomatic stage. And it is an example of when somebody goes low, and I don't think Macron necessarily did, but given as much benefit of the doubt as you can to Scott Morrison, if you think Macron has gone low in what he said, you have gone lower when you then release the text exchange. And and that, to me, sums up Scott Morrison. It's interesting because you know, there's this attempt to craft by the government all kinds of ways. You know, first of all, there's the, we must move forward with our relationship, et cetera. But uh, Simon Birmingham on, on ABC Radio National asked whether in retrospect it was an, a mistake to release that text, shifted it to the claim that uh, it was journalists who'd pressured Macron yeah. into the line. You know, that it was inappropriate because the journalists pressured Macron. Poor Macron. In fact, Macron had finished pretty much that doorstop. He was walking through. Most of the journalists had fallen off him, but at the back was an SBS journalist who was standing there, and he was the one who put to him, do you think he lied? And he said, I don't think I know, and then kept moving. It was the very end of it. I know the SBS journalist you're talking about. He was peppering him. All right, sorry. But I think the last one was actually a fellow called Bevan Shields who is the, yeah, the, uh, the European correspondent for the nine Fairfax papers. But you're right, the SBS journalist was the one who was peppering a number of questions at him. Pablo, I think is his name. Yes, that's right. But, but I guess my point, the one about lying, the direct question about lying, you're quite right, it was Bevan Shield. 
was at the end. It was, yeah. And he was walking away and people had fallen away. So it wasn't as if, they were, you know, will you say lying? Why don't you say lying? Why did you say lie? That's pressuring a guy into a position. You know, the guy's a president of the Republic of France, for heaven's sake. He's not exactly a neophyte. <laughs> but, um, but plainly, this is the recasting of this narrative. And one of the things also I thought was instructive was that when the the first opportunity that was put to Scott Morrison, that Macron had said, had called him a liar, Morrison goes, well, I don't accept that. That's not true, et cetera. And then immediately twists it by saying, well, I know you journalists have met him already. You've been taking selfies with him. That's what I was about to say. Exactly right. And that wasn't even true, we are now told by the travelling journalist. So another lie. <laughs> but I mean, the whole thing was on camera because it was caught on those cameras. It wasn't true. It was a slur against the journalists there, which is no big deal. Journalists have got thick skins as well. But that's not important. What is important about it is to see the way Scott Morrison operates in those environments. Cornered, he'll turn around and just dart out a falsehood, a baseless uh, reference. Mm. When the journalist said, we weren't taking selfies with him, he said, oh, I must have been misinformed. <laughs> and this is very similar. It reminded me of that time when he was in trouble over the in March, after the Brittany Higgins thing had broken, and there was all that trouble about culture in Parliament, mm. and he turns around and has a crack at Sky News saying that, you know, there is a, a matter right now about the harassment of a woman in the women's toilets at your organisation. That's right. That's right. And then Sky's bosses at News Corp said, no, that didn't happen. And then he apologised for it, sort of. That business of turning and spinning. And and, and I was just to jump in, and on the, on the same tenor, going back to when he was over there, uh, in Europe, you know, first Rome, then Glasgow. Yeah. He then followed up the false accusation about journalists being there taking selfies by then trying to take aim back at Macron by saying, I will not, you know, let him basically trash Australia and attack Australia. I will stand up for Australia. Whereas if you listen to the full transcript and watch the full video of Macron, he specifically carved out his respect for Australia as a nation and as a people and then specifically isolated his criticism for the Australian Prime Minister. But then our Prime Minister tries to misrepresent what Macron said and argue that he was attacking us all as a country, and he tries to evoke nationalism in response to that, standing up for Australia when we're getting slurred. And, and not only that, by referring to his own broad shoulders. <laughs> That's right. No, he, That's so right. here he is, the great defender with his broad shoulders <laughs> against this attack against Australia. It's masterful in its own way. And I guess this goes to the central point. John Howard had a great number of masterful tricks towards the very end. And it took, it took over a decade. People could see all the tricks and they weren't any longer suckered in by them. The way in which he'd wedge, the way in which he would, you know, he'd play things about saying sorry, for example, and wouldn't say that mm. uh, because it wasn't going to bind this generation. Apologies to, you know, whatever. And in the end, people could see through it all and they'd kind of had enough of it. Because I still think it's working for Scott Morrison. Because Scott Morrison, bear in mind, is still more popular as a choice for prime minister than, than Albanese. So somewhere out there, despite the fact that the overall polls are dumping down, you know, he's not calamitously down in the polls personally. Mm. So it has worked for him. And the question is, will it keep working for him long enough to somehow pull another victory out of the fire in the next six months? Or are people going, this guy's actually... Full of shit. <laughs> and it's touch and go, isn't it? Because you're right, he's ahead on those personal ratings, even though the party rating is tumbling. But his lead on the personal ratings isn't as large as it once was, but it is still strong. 
And what we're about to see transpire over the next few months as we count down to the calling of an election campaign over the summer is the government will try to twist the narrative away from all of its weak spots, one of which is the issue of trustworthiness in the Prime Minister, but then there are so many others, everything from you know the, the, the so-called women's problem that the government has right through to any other number of issues around the vaccine rollout, at least at the beginning of it, and so on and so forth, the fallout from the bushfires, the lack of an integrity commission, you name it. They'll try to pivot away from all of that and make it just about the economy, because whether this is fair or not, on the polling, they lead by about 20 points over Labor on better economic managers. So they will try to make it trust to manage the economy and the post-pandemic recovery. And Labor will pull its hair out in frustration, arguing that, you know, there are failures on that front. What about what we did in the 80s with microeconomic reform? What about uh, Kevin Rudd et al. saving us from a recession after the global financial crisis? But none of that matters because we know that the public trusts the economy to the coalition more than it does to Labor. The interesting thing will be, does it work? Is Scott Morrison able with such a wafer-thin majority to recalibrate and focus on the economy, utilise his preferred PM ratings, and then make it about that level of trust, a little bit like what Howard did when he pivoted away from all of his problems in 2004 against Mark Latham to make it about trust on interest rates, which ironically went went up after he was re-elected? Or will Scott Morrison find himself in trouble because he tries to make that pivot but there's baked in angst, there's growing concern, there's an it's time factor as they go for a fourth term and so on. That's going to be the really interesting debate. And we're going to find that out, I think, fairly early in the new year. But we're also going to get Hugh a hint of it by whether he calls this election shortly after Australia Day. He wants to call this election shortly after Australia Day for an early March or at worst late March election. If he does not do that, that means they are not in a position to win that election and they are delaying it in the hope of turning things around. That will be a bad sign for them if this election is not called very late January or early February. Fascinating. Let's take a quick break. Back in just a second. Welcome back. This is episode 108, Sont a Huit. No, I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> of the professor and the hack. I did three years of French at high school. It's completely hopeless, but it has enabled me to order coffees on those rare occasions I get to go to Paris for any reason. We talked about trust being an issue for Scott Morrison. The other element, the unknown factor in this, of course, is the degree to which people will satisfy themselves that they can trust Albanese. I would say that my gut feeling is, is that there's a big question mark over that. The curious thing about Morrison, and this is where I think he holds up, is people, I suspect, believe that he's a slippery character and lies or dissembles, avoids, shapeshifts on positions and so on like that. But they kind of take a view, well, that's what politicians do, mm. you know, and don't mark him down too much. You know, politicians, they lie. I mean, a car, used car salesman will tell you that the engine's good for another 100,000 Ks and it ain't. That is such a good point, Hugh, because you and I uh, and people who watch this closely, you know, like we've just done, we, we talk about the gradations of, you know, misrepresenting or being loose with the truth amongst politicians. Whereas I think you're right. I think most voters just cast them all aside as being like that and then don't really bother to turn their mind unless a particular totemic event makes them do so. To, to trying to judge between slippery politicians. I think, I think you're exactly right on that. And I mean, one of the interesting things is if you look at the leaked text from Macron, 
is that it, it's been leaked. The purpose of, of leaking it was to reinforce Morrison's position that Macron knew ahead of time that the French subs deal was about to, contract was about to get torn up. But that's not actually what it says. Mm. It says, am I expecting good news or bad news about our joint submarines ambitions? So that suggests there's a, there's a strong question mark. I would like to see the text back. Yes. And Morrison says that in June, in mid-June, after the meeting, the summit that he had, the, the meeting with Biden and uh, Boris Johnson in Cornwall, which is when they started to put meat on the bones about this idea of, of shifting to a nuclear submarine, he then flew to Paris, had dinner at the Elysee pa- uh, Palace with Macron and said that there were concerns about the sub meeting Australia's national strategic interests. And he's now saying, oh, look, they knew, they knew. But as he said, the French went into a full court press, was his words. They sent an admiral out to Australia to suss it out. There were plainly issues about costs and delays involved. And the French were busily trying to fix up the problems that were within it. And Morrison at the time thanked Macron for taking a personal interest in sorting out these problems. So whatever he now says, he says to the French, in other words, signaling as early as June that, you know, we're likely to be heading in another direction. The reaction of the French is consistent. And in fact, Morrison's comments at the time were consistent with the French being told, we've got problems with this contract. You'd better get going to fix it up. So not that it's over, but that there's a problem and we need to sharpen up. Mm to get this done. So the text message for all the diplomatic damage that was done and leaking it doesn't actually... No, not at all. You know, <laughs> you know all that. But anyway, on to Albanese. But you, can, can I just quick... Just, just, I was just going to very quickly say, I mean, on, on this issue, I, and maybe I'm being too forgiving of Scott Morrison to say this, if he was just more frank about it and if he just came out, even now, having been accused of lying and deceiving, if he just came out and said, look at all the efforts that have been made by the French and Macron to scuttle our ability to do a separate deal and to pull out of the contract. How on earth could I be expected to be upfront before the contract was locked in with the Americans, given that's the way they operate? Now that gets messier and it becomes even more of a war of words. But I, I could have a certain amount of understanding towards that. I mean, I, I'm critical of the pre-existing point before that, which is that you've done a deal with the French, breaking the contract is a bad look no matter what. Is there a way to recalibrate the contract with the French rather than break it, given they're such a close ally, yada, yada, yada? But if the answer to all of that ultimately is no, we need to go with the Americans, which I think it's, it's far from clear cut that that is the best policy position. But even if it is, I would be much more forgiving of Scott Morrison if he just came out and said, was I, if you like, less than fulsomely honest? I was because I had no choice. Look at what they've tried to do ever since, blah, blah, blah. But he falls short of that because he doesn't want to have a direct spat with Macron. So he tries to use all those elements of trickery instead. But whether he likes it or not, Macron has called this out and he's done it very publicly. He's got his own election to face. You've got to fight that fire with fire, which Morrison isn't prepared to do. So he's prepared to be tricky, but not prepared. And he's prepared to release texts that are private, but he's not prepared to just take an honest position. If you go left on the timeline, in other words, you go backwards in time. Had they managed this with greater clarity and diplomacy, you get the feeling they would have managed it out better and kept them on board, that there just simply was a, a lapse that went there. Mm. On trust, one of the key things, this I suppose is circling back to an idea before, is that 
the punters, the middle Australia that will decide the next election, I suspect still trust, despite everything we say, Morrison more than the political professionals do, because they only hear one thing, and that is national security in the best interests, nuclear subs are in the best interest. And they think, I don't care what political tricks he has to pull. I believe he's out there acting in our national interest. <laughs> and sure, there are journos buzzing around him like bloody horseflies around a turd. That's what journalists do. But, you know, he's, he's in there still, to, you know, no matter what we say, that there's still a middle Australia view of him that he is somehow or other, if not the most sophisticated politician that, that Australia has ever produced, then at least he's honestly looking after the national interest. If he can manage to sustain that in the place where it matters, in those swing seats, he's still very much in the race. Oh, look, he is. I mean, I think his pathway to victory is, is narrow, but eminently achievable for him. And it's only narrow because of the small number of seats he holds in terms of the size of his wafer-thin majority. You know, if he had a 10-plus seat majority, I would say that he's in the box seat, notwithstanding the polls, because they can then start sandbagging. But your point, I think, is right again, because, you know, you've got a, a situation where he evokes nationalism. I think that doesn't play out badly amongst a lot of mainstream Australians, uh, and they don't get caught in the weeds of, of analysing it like we do. And of course, he's not talking about climate change, which is what that whole trip there and back was, was meant to be about. And that's not a good topic for him because it becomes a real wedge between his inner city seats and some of his outer metro and regional seats um, for his party. And of course, not to mention the, the, the ongoing issues between the Nats and the Libs. So that has just fallen by the wayside, even though it's you know, meant to be the greatest moral challenge of our time. And that doesn't hurt Scott Morrison, as long as it doesn't come back as long as it becomes a rear view mirror issue come election time and the selfish gene comes out in the voter and the focus becomes on the economy, which is their strength. And then, as you mentioned, the matchup with Anthony Albanese, broader issues of trust that might go both ways uh, and who's better placed to be our prime minister through a post-pandemic recovery. The Liberals will be hoping it's the same person that the opinion polls say is if other issues don't infect that judgment. Let's move on to another subject. We saw Gladys Berejiklian appearing before the uh, New South Wales ICAC. There was an exchange, I, I credit Sam Maiden for dredging out this particular exchange, because it goes to, it's an exchange that was picked up on the telephone intercepts between Berejiklian and her then lover, Daryl Maguire. And it goes to what is asked of politicians nowadays, or at least as they perceived it's asked of them. If you bear with me, I'm going to read this. You know what, says Daryl Maguire, constituents use you every day. People use you every day, right? You bear your ass to the world every day, right? For people to raise funds for you, to come to your fundraisers, I'm going to swear here, to fucking well vote for you, to man your booths, we become prostitutes. Hmm, says Berejiklian. Prostitutes, says Maguire. You have a good long hard think about it. Hmm, says Berejiklian. We've become, swearing again, fucking harlots and prostitutes through no fault of our own because of these, you know, rules of transparency, of, you know, arm's length, of not talking to this person or that person or bloody ICAC or everything else. So that's Darren Maguire in conversation with Gladys Perejiklian. But somewhere in the core of it, even allowing for the fact that Maguire is a corrupt politician, what is the case he's making is that politicians are necessarily prostitutes, to use his words, harlots, every day in order to make the wheels of the political 
game work, they have to essentially do deals, oil wheels, bear their ass, in order to get funds for their own campaigns. And I wonder whether, you know, there's no objection as he's making all these points from Gladys Berejiklian. And of course, as she gave evidence, a lot of the time she wasn't listening to him. But, you know, she, she didn't say, oh, come on, you're being a bit dramatic or something. So I guess the question is, is our political system, as we look at it, essentially exposed in an exchange like that, shorn of everything else, shorn of all its importance, our democracy, with all its noble intent and its broad success, is it really, as he describes, this shambolic, horrific, transactional process whereby MPs, in order to make it work, will cut any deal, will prostitute any principle, just to try to stagger to the next line, which is the next election. Yeah. I mean, this is its own, uh, it's, it's not even its own podcast, is it? It's its own book or series, frankly, because I've been analysing this stuff now for, for, for many years and there are contradictions, even if you have firm principles about what democracy should look like. You can have strong views on the value and importance of integrity commissions, about levels of transparency and so forth, about the the blight that is pork barreling and as well as money in politics, whether it's private or whatever else. However, at its core, one of the problems with democracy is that it's about having elected people then serve communities and by serving communities, try and advocate for those communities, which basically means try and get you know money, facilities, whatever it might be. Now, as long as they're not doing it for personal advantage, that is direct private personal advantage, it marries up that they're doing it to some extent for personal advantage to get re-elected. Uh, but you hope that democracy somehow culturally dovetails that their personal ambition to get re-elected by doing the best they can for their community brings about projects and outcomes that are properly pressure tested in a public policy sense. And that's one of the big questions. That's where you need to have arm's length bureaucrats between the populist politician there to represent the public. But you don't want those arm links bureaucrats to become wholly controlling because then the politicians, and this is sort of almost Daryl Maguire's point, perhaps accidentally in between his rhetoric, you want the politicians to maintain a level of forceful power, but it has to be such that there are checks and balances to avoid it being corrupted, even if not in pure corruption sense, in the sense that it becomes wastages of public money or... Yeah, the system the system becomes corrupted, and this is where pork barrelling yeah. comes from. And I spoke to Geoffrey Watson, SC, who's a former senior counsel at the New South Wales ICAC, and he says, stop calling it pork barrelling. It is misuse of public funds because what we saw when, when Berejiklian saying, yeah, sure, I'll get you that money in five minutes. I'll get you $170 million to do whatever you want to do. The claim being is that she was more bending towards him because she had a secret relationship with him, that she wouldn't do it to any other backbencher. So that's one issue. But the point is, it's not a victimless crime, this business of using public funds, taxpayer funds, for political purposes to achieve electoral ends. And Watson, Jeffrey Watson, points to Newcastle. He says, for 50 to 100 years, Newcastle withered because it was rock-solid Labor. And Labor didn't bother putting any money in it because it was, you know, comfortable that it, those votes were locked in and would never go. And the coalition, when it was in power, certainly wasn't going to bother sluicing money in towards a place like Newcastle. And so the pork barrelling, the effect where, where the money only is interested 
in marginal electorates is a real cancer in our system. I agree. And I noticed that in Bradfield, which is one of the most secure liberal seats in the country, in the northern suburbs of Sydney, they've got a candidate who's going to stand at the next election. He has one platform, and that platform is make Bradfield marginal. There's nothing else. Vote for me, make the place marginal, and get some bloody attention. Yeah, but, but this is the problem, right? I mean, I, I completely concur. But the problem is the very definition of elective democracy means that there are going to be examples of pork barreling that I would disagree uh, with Watson QC about that have to be pork barreling rather than outright corruption. The problem is that that's the nature of democracy, you know, the least bad system of all. It's about trying to make it that little bit better where you can, but you're not going to stamp it all out. So, for example, if a leader stands up in an election campaign and says, here's my election policy, I'm injecting $300 million into building this hospital in this marginal electorate, that might be a crap project, a completely ridiculous project, a waste of taxpayers' dollars, unnecessary on all sorts of fronts, independently assessed as such by bureaucrats. But if it's taken to an election and if they win the election, they have, in an argumentative sense, a mandate of some sort to be able to go forth with it. It's bad policy. It's a white elephant. It's ridiculous. It's pork barreling as well. But it's kind of democracy. And that's the problem. So how do you fix that? And, and you can fix parts of it. And this is not analogous to what we're talking about, by the way, with Gladys Berejiklian. I think that the examples there with Darren Maguire, there's all sorts of other issues there, including disclosure problems and all the rest of it, which ICAC will look at. I'm more talking generically the problems of democracy, the imperfectness of it. And I, I've long found it one of the reasons I studied political science. I find it fascinating because the intersection of policymaking and those unfortunate realities of democracy are interesting. Now, let me give one quick example. In Singapore, which of course is only a semi-democracy at best, it's really interesting because there this highlights the problem of it, right? It's a semi-democracy. They have elections. The opposition does win the odd seat in its parliament. However, what they do, because they're not a true democracy and they don't have a true freedom of the media, anytime an opposition wins a seat, that region is starved. They get nothing. They get penalised for going against the ruling party. And invariably, almost always, they come back within one, if not two, electoral cycles because they want to start to get the resources back. Now, that's not democracy. That is overtly bad. But that is like the worst case scenario of the consequences of this populist element to democracy. And this, we don't have time for this now because I know we're almost out of time, but pure democracy isn't populism, whereas pork barreling is pure populism. And there's so much to unpack in that. It's, it's a really interesting area. More for another time. PVO, a pleasure as always. Good to chat, mate. Take care, mate. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.